Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, our penciler is presented with the unenviable task of making a containment suit embrace still look sexy in Excalibur number 115, Missionaries, wherein Moira makes the off-panel decision to finally confront the dangling plot thread of the legacy virus. Excalibur <laughs> number 115 was originally published in December 1997, and the creative team is Ben Robb on writing, Mel Ruby on pencils, Scott Koblish on inks, Kevin Tinsley on colors, Richard Starkings and Kiff Scholl on letters, and Kelly Kovas and Jason White on editing. I've been doing exhaustive research into our lives. Once I find the last one or two missing pieces, I'll have conclusive proof that we were all destined to meet. This is how we're all connected. I call it the crazy quilt of destiny, mainly because the Lumafate was already taken. Really? Welcome back to our ongoing discussion of the comic book that's always been about Moira's very on-panel affliction with a seemingly random but actually expertly orchestrated virus engineered by the ultimate chaos bringer. But who are we? Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papara. Do you know the score? Sexy gendery stuff in comics and pop culture all around the internet and various academic spots and the most regular spot that combines the two as the co-project lead of Sequential Scholars. I also remain Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager and have started a retroactive campaign to get him back in this book, which which I'm sure will pay off soon. Moving on, I am joined as always by Mav. Are you feeling healthy this week? I, my shoulder's sore. I, I got a COVID shot yesterday, or I guess, I, wait, why do we call them the COVID shots? Like really it's the anti-COVID shot that I got. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I got like my, I don't know, Jesus, I've lost count, sixth or seventh vaccine or whatever we're on, yeah. you know? <laughs> like, yeah, okay. um, So like, so I feel okay. Like I, I don't have any major side effects this time, and and um, you, I mean, other than that, I guess I'm healthy. You know, I I, I do have a hangnail. Is that bad? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Hi, my oh, name is no, Christopher you... Maverick. But you can call me Mav. <laughs> I am... I was gonna say you better you better put your hand in a containment suit uh, to yeah. protect the rest of yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah. In order now. to it's very contagious. Like clearly, like saw saw it off because you know mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Um, beyond that, I I I host this show and another show, Vox Podcast. You guys have heard the. It's weird. Like you know, we're like a hundred and fifteen comics in but really plus special episodes and and like i don't know why we started this thing of let me make a goofy version of my intro but like (laughs) (laughs) how many more of them do i have i don't know (laughs) you have 10 it's too late to change now we've got 10 more (laughs) that's right i don't know I, i i i do research on gender and sexuality and race and class and pop culture that's what i do people know that i don't know go listen to one of the other 120 some odd episodes <laughs> thank you for that andrew how are your health stores at this point of the semester oh always atrocious i have i have two kids and my wife is a teacher at, at our university so like come september it's just a treadmill of diseases that go through my house it's fantastic uh, in happy fantastic news. sure yeah <laughs> I'm Dr. J. Andrew Duman of Sequential Scholars and um, St. John's University. Um, and my book comes out tomorrow. And in Yay. podcast time, it's already sure out. Does. So, woot. Can, can I tell the cool story about Andrew's book? 
Yeah, dude. I got I got I got a um, email today asking me if um I like just announcing the book and asking me if I wanted a review copy, you know, so that like you know because like maybe I want to use it in a class and you know had, had I heard about it and it, so this is like a thing you, that you literally do. acknowledged in it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like, like yes, yeah, yes. I'm. It's like I, I mean I didn't I didn't respond. I did say yes. Send me a free book. Because, like, why wouldn't I? Like I'm sure I could have just asked for one, but but I was like no no. Send me the free book. Yes, please. Um, um, and, 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 you know, yes, I, I, I'm aware that like I'm on page three, you know, so Mood. <laughs> I have, I have viewed a PDF of the book. I'm sure there will be a physical copy <laughs> in my life at some point, but I'm beyond excited, Andrew. I was, I was thinking about it. I mean, I've been thinking about it all week because there've been various, I've seeing been seeing people tweeting about it and, and stuff on social, which has been great. And the other day, Chris Claremont was trending on Twitter and I was like, you know, there's a non-zero chance it's because of your book, Andrew. And no, it, was Gail, it was Gail Simone. But... Well, still, still. <laughs> Let's say it was because of your book. Because she yeah, fired. Yeah. yeah, me and Gail Simone. Combined. Yeah, <laughs> those two things accumulating to get that trending. But yeah, seriously, I mean, what a journey that's been. And I feel like in my mind at time of recording, I'm preparing some sort of emotional tweet to tweet out tomorrow uh, about it and how much Aww. your project has meant to me. And I mean, that's the reason we're doing this podcast. It's the reason I'm with the guy that I'm with. It's the reason I've met so many friends over the years was was joining up. <laughs> Well, it is. It is because, you know, like that's, I would, the reason, so honestly, weird. Andrew, Andrew, the reason I signed up for a Twitter account was to follow Claremont Run. That is the reason <laughs> I signed up. So like when you think about all the social connections I've made and like us even starting this pod and being part of like that X-Men fan community and all the friends and connections I've made in that space and all the professional work I've done in that space, it is because I wanted to follow Claremont Run. You can laugh and say that that's putting too much on it, but like, I don't know. I mean, what? Would I have joined if it wasn't because I had to stop using the Canadian Society of Comics social media account and I needed to make my own account to keep following Claremont Run? <laughs> I don't know. I just, I wonder That's if awful. you can like backtrack it far enough and just be like, you know, I have a boyfriend because of the brood. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, <laughs> we could all make uh, like stringboard conspiracy wall about how we arrived at all the places <laughs> that we have arrived in our lives i feel like this was already a community episode and it went badly so let's not do that <laughs> but anyway i will wrap up this portion of the combo just by saying that i'm so so happy for you andrew the book is going to be a sensation i hope you make some royalties on it and i'm sure that you will make some despite the unfairness of academic contracts but the most important Tens, thing is twenty dollars Tons of people are going to read it and love it and be tweeting about it in the coming weeks. And I'm so excited for people to get their hands on it. So congratulations. Thank you. Our healthy crew is joined this week by a really fabulous scholar and writer who knows a thing or two about graphic medicine, which will no doubt significantly help elevate today's conversation of this comic's very realistic depictions of PPE. The pod is absolutely honored to be joined by Dr. A. David Lewis. Welcome, David. Hey, thank you for having me. I've, I've just been sitting back and enjoying listening listening to all the friendly <laughs> lovely banter this has been so nice i feel like i'm i'm entering a, a warm cozy little uh little uh ensemble here thank you for having me uh, <laughs> i was gonna make some sort of containment pod joke but um i don't know where i was gonna go with it because you're in like a nice cozy little <laughs> environment with like pete wisdom put the good coffee in there for you but um i guess we'll get to that let's introduce you properly first david and then we will talk about your work and your comics origin story so a david lewis is the eisner award nominated author of american comics religion and literary theory the superhero afterlife as well as co-editor of graven images religion in comic books and graphic novels and pandemic and epidemics and cultural representation. He is currently program coordinator for the Master of Health Science degree at MCPHS, University School of Arts and Sciences, where his teaching and research focus on graphic medicine, specifically the depiction of cancer in comic books and graphic novels. He is also the acclaimed author of such comics as the 2023 adaptation of Khalil Gibran's The Prophet, and he served this past year as one of the six national judges for the Eisner Awards, which is super, super exciting. Obviously, your work is well known to us, David, 
but you will be new to some of our listeners. So let's start by getting to know you a little bit better. And we like to do comics origin stories with first time guests. And we're not going to make an exception for you because I really want to hear yours. So have you been a lifelong reader of comics, David? Tell me about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I really have been a lifelong reader. I should say that I grew up in a household where they encouraged reading everything. So uh, we did. I didn't have sort of like gatekeepers about this is high literature, this is low literature. I was just consuming everything. In fact, I think my earliest exposure to comic books and superheroes were the album comics. You could put like a an album, a record on your record player, vinyl, mm-hmm. and you could listen along to a comic that you were flipping through the pages with. So I, I think this impacted on my senses quite early. I ended up going to a, a liberal arts university where I had a very encouraging professor who we were doing a, a Shakespeare class and he knew I was into Neil Gaiman and he knew I was into Sandman. So he encouraged me to write on that and a, a monster was created. I haven't really stopped since. Let me ask a little bit more about your your the academic side of your work on comics and specifically your work on graphic medicine. You know, I kind of want to do just kind of like the huge question of like what you find interesting about that topic and like how you got started in it, which you could take in whatever direction you want. So let's just keep it open ended. But like, yeah, what what interests you about about that aspect of comics? of comics theory and how did you get interested in it? Like everything in my life, I came to it sort of backwards. I was already working on comic studies and particularly comics and religion. I was uh, most focused on religious studies. That's what my first book was actually about, Mm -hmm. American comics, literary theory, and religion. But I kept finding that the stories I was most drawn to had medical elements to it. Uh, For instance, Binky Brown meets the Holy Virgin Mary is about, it's certainly about religion, but also about his OCD. And when I was reading Mouse by Art Spiegelman, this is PTSD, this is survivor trauma, this is dysentery, and all sorts of um, terrible, terrible Uh, diseases and illnesses that would come up uh, with imprisoned individuals. So more and more, I was sort of drifting out of religious studies and into healthcare. But my focus, I think, remained on what is the self? What constitutes a whole person? W-H-O-L-E, not H-O-L-E. A whole person. Sort of. I'm, I'm getting flashes back to the last Ant-Man uh, movie. Where well, they... yeah, I was gonna say we're not talking about the supervillain, <laughs> the spot. We are talking about W H O L E. The whole person, and I always found that comics, through its representationality, through its multiple ways of portraying an individual, just even from panel to panel, or in their varied depictions. I'm thinking of all the different ways we've seen Harvey Picar. I'm thinking of all the different artists that have worked on Hal Jordan. Comics seemed like the medium I most wanted to play in and examine these ideas. But I went from looking at the whole person as a soul to looking at the whole person as a self or selfhood as it's medically defined. So I've been on a journey, uh, as it were, all across this beautiful landscape of comics (laughs) and have currently settled in graphic medicine, which of all the fields, I think, has the most real world impact. We have people learning about conditions and learning about uh, maybe their own ailments and how to treat them through graphic medicine. We have people who are living with conditions able to express themselves better through comic stories. And we have practitioners that are actually learning hands-on techniques and practices through comic story and comic storytelling. So it does feel in many ways like the most direct application of the medium. It's valuable in so many other ways. I don't discount that at all, but I do particularly like seeing it in action. Yeah, I I love that the way that you characterized it, you know, sort of like a journey toward exploring the self in comics. But yeah, can I can I ask you to expand on that a little bit more? Like what makes representations of the self so particularly interesting to you in this form? Like what makes representation special in this form for the kind of issues you're you're in 
interested in in thinking about? Well, when I was uh, going at it from a religious studies lens, I was looking at how we really aren't just body and mind, okay? We really are a collection of facets of personalities that sort of glob together to form roughly on the given day a total person. But what I liked most about comics is that you can take this uh, 10,000 foot approach and look at a full page at a whole set of moments in time, or you can zoom in on the particular panel and the particular panel sequence. And I'd like to think that selfhood works in a similar way, that we are ourselves, that we are a whole person if you stand way back and look at us from a distance. But up close, we're different from panel to panel. And I don't mean in that in some pathological sense. I don't mean we're alters or uh, uh, express different personalities. I think we have, and uh, I, I like to think of uh, Dr. Manhattan, that he can see all the facets of time at once, but sees them as distinct in different times. I think personality and selfhood work in a similar fashion. I think that we are both the full page and the sequence of panels that we're currently focused on. And I don't think there's any other medium that captures this the same way. Maybe film, but with film, with cinema, you are beholden to the speed of the projector or the, the mm -hmm. speed of what's unspooling. Whereas in comics, you can accelerate or decelerate or hold a moment yourself and it only becomes whole, it only becomes a gestalt in the reader's mind. So it is much more inclusive, I would say, and much more an unfolding creative process than film, dance, theater, sculpture, prose literature, poems. I have a love for all of these other things. I was just at a play, a live theater play this weekend, but I don't see the self both broken down and reassembled the way that I do in comics. Oh, I like that broken down and reassembled. That's a good way of putting it. I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you preach it to the choir here. So much of what you're sure. saying through like a slightly different lens is what interests me about the erotics of the space a lot of the time. But, um, you know, being able to hold those moments and be involved in the action and the ways that that elicits empathy can make it really fascinating for a lot of the stuff that I'm particularly interested in too. But these things are all connected, of course. Um, oh, can I absolutely I ask... relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, can I, um, can I ask you an X-Men question? Can sure. I ask you about about your familiar your familiarity with this particular franchise i think you do have some familiarity but i would love to hear a little bit more of like were you an x-men reader growing up have you been an x-men reader as an adult what's your familiarity like david definitely i was definitely an x-men reader i probably first got exposed well i first got exposed to the x-men through secret wars it was totally licensing that first introduced <laughs> the characters uh to me and I could see them on the toy shelves. But I think I be started to become a reader right around uh, the fall of the mutants and the mutant massacre and then into mm -hmm. their Australian outback days. Yeah. This was also mm -hmm. when Excalibur first took off and I was a it big is. Alan Davis fan of the time. I waxed and waned over the years. Um, I remember Executioner's song and I remember when Wolverine got all of his adamantium pulled out of him. I haven't been closely following it. I didn't I think I stopped following it closely around the schism when Cyclops and Wolverine were bickering with each other, but jumped back on on the Hickman run with the, the Krakoan Age, which I'm sorry to see is coming to an end. I was yes. really finding it uh, really original, mm -hmm. I but I enjoyed Excalibur for the cross-time caper. I remember that mm -hmm. quite well. Uh, I have loved uh, Nightcrawler. I haven't been as erotically drawn to Nightcrawler as... <laughs> 
not a requirement. I, I not a requirement. <laughs> good. Okay, that's good. It's it's the three fingers. I think that throws me. It's not the fur. It's not the fangs. It's not the tail. Um, but no, I have been there. I have been with the X Men and Cable and X Man and X Factor for for quite some time. All right. Yes. All right. I mean, can I can I ask you the question about you know if there's something that makes this franchise special to you what would it be i mean what differentiates the x-men from other franchises of superhero comics to your mind i think the key difference is that none of them asked for this i mean whereas with spider-man he had to learn with great power comes great responsibility and with captain america he had to volunteer for the super soldier serum and Bruce Banner was fucking around with gamma radiation and he was just too <laughs> broken an individual to uh, to deal with it successfully. The X-Men as mutants have been both given and cursed with their powers. It makes mm-hmm. them necessarily separate and they have to determine what is their responsibility to the greater good. Can they overcome prejudice, hate, just othering and in fact, turn it 180 degrees to be caretakers. I think there's, I think something in Hickman's run that's really appealed to me is that not only have they gone from team to family to actually a people, but especially with the whole Mars storyline, this whole place where it's under, they're no longer the oppressed. Do they still have a responsibility to help others, maintain peace, be the savior figures that they're sometimes forced into? So I think the involuntary nature of the X-Men is something that really keeps attracting me. Ooh, I like that. That's a that's a great way of putting it. And Thank you. yeah, we are we are in the midst of the fall of X and Tom Brevoort is taken over and in fact had a <laughs> quote from his newsletter this week that people are not excited about, but um we'll see what happens. <laughs> of of anyone I like Tom Brevoort. I mean, of I, I'm not sad that it's going to him. I just think this Krakoan age had so many more stories that could be told. It's not yeah. like the Outback the first- era or the Jean mm-hmm. Grey school. This felt like something radical that could have been explored much more uh, deeply. It was the first time I'd been interested in, uh, I mean, it was the most I'd been interested in the X-Men in over a decade was when this started. And uh, mm-hmm. like, I understand the things, that, there's been controversial bits. I understand the things that people have liked, the things that people have not liked. It was the first time I'd felt like, oh, someone's taking a swing and doing something different and interesting since, I don't know, early 2000s. I'm hoping we get some version of classic X-Men going back and exploring this time period, the stories that weren't told, even if it's limited to this pocket of time. I'm hoping it can still be explored at some later date. Here's hoping we will see. For now, let's go back in time to 1997 and talk about this issue of this comic book, um, which I think has some resonances with graphic medicine. We will oh, talk sure. about whether they are good resonances or not, but let's get through our issue summary first and I'll come right back to you with some of those questions, David. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We definitely pack you some good coffee for quarantine because we're clearly folks with discerning taste. Here's a very tasteful plot summary. Excalibur number 115 opens with Sean Cassidy, aka Banshee, now of Generation X, arriving on Muir Island. He's responding to an urgent request from a distraught rain Sinclair, who's concerned about certain actions Moira is about to take, namely that she's going to quarantine herself in her quest to find a cure for the deadly legacy virus. Moira is shocked to see Banshee, but is willing to discuss the situation. She says she's discovered a pattern for the virus in the form of a non-pattern. Essentially, it's airborne and also any mutant or human is potentially a victim. Sean considers talking Moira out of her plan, but decides to support her decision instead. After all, she is the bravest woman he knows. Meanwhile, Douglock tries to discuss his feelings with a preoccupied rain, while Pete Wisdom uses Cerebro to try and locate my beloved Kurt Wagner, who remains missing, but Pete quickly gives up and wrecks the machine. Again, Kurt needs better friends. Elsewhere, Megan reads a letter from Brian in which he promises to return soon, and Sean looks for comfort from the White Queen, which he does not receive. Finally, Rain and Moira say their heartfelt farewells. But moments after Moira enters the lab, which is on a locked timer and cannot be opened from the inside or the outside, Rain leaps in with Moira, sealing them both inside. 
So David, we chatted a little bit before the pod about the representation of the legacy virus in comics. I warned you that this is not necessarily an especially good representation of some of those dynamics, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I'll just put the broad first impressions question to you. After reading this issue of this comic book, is there anything that you're particularly eager to discuss? Anything that you're particularly baffled by? Hit me with it, David. Okay, I think we can extract some positives here. Uh, I don't I don't think that this is totally a I don't think this is totally a negative experience by any means. The fact that the X titles had this legacy virus as a plot line across the franchise was pretty impressive because this was at the height of uh, the AIDS epidemic and AIDS paranoia in particular people coping with this mysterious illness in a way that we haven't seen since people, uh, since U.S. culture was dealing with polio, really. So the fact that we have this ersatz version of AIDS that's largely limited to the abundant mutant population. There were plenty of C-listers and D-listers they could knock off in to make this, to give this more pathos. I think there's something valuable there. They were trying to tap into something. Fast forward a little bit and thinking less about AIDS and HIV and looking more at something like COVID and the coronavirus. The thing that we find in Maura McTaggart, she is both frontline worker and researcher and victim all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And when we were uh, dealing with the pandemic, I don't know how over it necessarily is. There are spikes that are still happening even today, but we do have a clear division of labor between who's going to who's going to be the the Anthony Fauci who's going to be the hospice care worker, who's going to be the policymaker. I mean, we have all these divisions and specialties when it comes to pandemics and epidemics that we have to all pack into basically Moira McTaggart and not seen in this comic, Hank McCoy. And I think it sensitizes readers a little bit to the sacrifices they have to make, the dangers that they encounter, the uncertainty, the frustration. So I think we can at least glean those two elements from this otherwise, I'll be kind and say muddled story. Yeah. Um, it, it is not Excalibur in its heights. It is not Cal- Excalibur in its prime. It feels a little bit like a, a filler issue, to be honest, just a bit of soap opera between them all, between fights, but we can at least gain a sensitivity to both uh, what was unfolding in the 90s and what just recently we all experienced. Can I, well, let me pick up some first impressions from Andrew and Mav, and then I'm going to come back with to you for another question about the legacy virus. But um, how are you feeling about this one, Andrew? I mean, I think muddled is is a very fair description of this comic, but how are you feeling? Yeah, I, I think I'm I'm in more on the good side than the bad side. I, I think there's pieces to this that I really like. Um, I, I've said before, I'm a fan of Moira McTaggart. She's considered the archetypal Claremont woman, as they're called. Um, and I, I think the ways that she's centered in this narrative, maybe a little over do and i really really liked it's just like one or two panels um where banshee has to think about how to support her uh and he he has that impulse to be like the um i don't know masculine hero knight in shining armor kind of thing and he's like no i should just trust that she knows what she's doing and let her do it and i thought that was a nice touch so there's like little scenes like that little details that i like there's a lot of narration that i actually like where i haven't always been a fan of rob's narration i think i mentioned last episode i liked a little bit of it um the opening narration i thought was quite good so yeah i I think for me this one's coming together there's a whole lot of sloppy science in it as there always is but more good than bad for me. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about the representation of containment here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like oh yeah. How, that, how that's <laughs> yeah. represented. Um Mav, how are you feeling? 89% solid B+. Plus. I like wow. this book. Mm. Yeah. I I'm I'm more or less where I mean David was almost lukewarm on it, but I think I agree with you in principle. And then I'm more or less where Andrew is. There are some issues that we'll talk about that I think are dumb, bad, (laughs) downright annoying and, and stupid in this. 
But it's also this was not a book written in the COVID era. This was a book written. Yeah, I, I would caveat yeah. the the um, the thing that David said about the AIDS era. It's not only the AIDS era, it's the portion of the AIDS era where we and I'm going to say this in a way that I, I don't know a better way to say it. We'd sort of kind of given up. We'd realized, oh, I guess this is not going to go away. This is just something we're going to have to live with. And it's going to be terrible. And we're just going to and it's all about educating the world now. And, you know, like in the 80s, people were like, we're going to cure AIDS. And then in the 90s, it was just like, oh, so so AIDS is here now. And like, like and we've got to change our behaviors. And so I feel like it wants to be dealing with that. I feel like Rob is doing his best to do it responsibly. I feel like Rob is trying to do characterization and interpersonal relationships more so than he's tried to do in the last six issues. I mean, he had like, he had a moment before, like when he was just like, let's have Kurt and Peter talk to each other for two seconds. And now we're moving on. And he had like the, the entire Megan Colossus thing which i have no interest in here i'm like i i get to see you know sean and moira's relationship i get to see rain and moira's relationship i get to see rain and douglock's relationship i i get to see wisdom sort of reasonably having thoughts about his relationship with both nightcrawler and with kitty like there's stuff here there's the seeds of you know trying to tell a story and trying to you know do something that is what i like about x-men right like it 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 wants to be a story about people going through a very real trauma and you know reacting to it in individual and reason i don't want to be reasonable like what happens but reasonable characterized ways the science of it annoys me but the but the but the and and particularly the logic of of certain things annoy me but like the the reaction right right like the world given the world they live in I think everyone's behaving in a interesting and character driven way. So, you know, Mm. solid B plus. Well, I I will give him the get out of jail card in the sense that he is being thrown an impossible to catch football here in terms of how the legacy virus has been handled across the line. And I think Mm -hmm. the page that we've already made fun of a couple of times where Moira is explaining the randomness of the virus is just so emblematic of that. And I'd actually like to read a couple of the the bubbles here (laughs) just in case people haven't read it. So she's doing this speech where she's explaining all the different victims. I won't read the whole thing, but she says some have died some are living with the sickness and while there seems to be nay overt correlation from one to the next he's really doing the phonetic accent (laughs) i believe they do share one common and terrifying trait and she goes through all the different uh powers of the very different mutants who have succumbed in very different ways to this very mysterious virus and last but not least me a non-mutant host for a mutant specific disease none no correlation right wrong. This seemingly random dispersal proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the natural (laughs) pattern of the legacy virus is one of chaos, a genetic anarchy fomented by the ultimate chaos bringer, strife. And it's like, wow, that was a lot of words to say it doesn't make sense. Let's just go with it. (laughs) Okay, see, here's the thing, though. This is is the part, this is where the aggravation comes. It was 1997. We knew how viruses worked. I don't mean we like scientists. (laughs) I mean the general public. Like there were people who there were a few people who were like, oh, isn't AIDS a gay disease? But for the most part, we were past that by 1997. And we understood that, like, you didn't have to be a bad person to catch AIDS. You didn't have to be a bad person to catch a cold or the flu. We understood that viruses just randomly like the the fact. What's the connection? It's almost like it was just an airborne virus that attacks people randomly. Yeah. Yeah. That's not super science. (laughs) That's not like that's literally you know fourth graders know this <laughs> and and it's and it's presented as though it and it, it it is repeated throughout this issue of i've got to isolate myself to figure out how this works why is it happening why you know the virus is mutating and and it's being it's it's being it's attacking people through the air with no rhyme or reason it's like yes that's how viruses work and we've known that for quite some time now so i know but there's like, the there's the necessity Why? of explaining it because of the way the virus was set up, right? It's set up as this world-ending threat, and yet only nine people have ever gotten it in ten years. <laughs> so it's like, well, that's like few only enough. Nine, only nine few, named characters. <laughs> but that's like few enough people that 
that wouldn't count as any kind of epidemic. So right. it's like, yeah. that could just be like a random genetic anomaly that is literally not related. So I think that to it's just fair, it's a, it's a storytelling had... problem that he is trying to solve with this convoluted mm -hmm. explanation, which I appreciate, but... The world had not seen a global pandemic in like 70 years at this point. That's true. That, that's not true for us. <laughs> but yeah. but for them, they're like, oh, pandemic, 10 people. Oh, this is awful. <laughs> yeah. you know? and, and Moira makes the jump from that, not just to strife, but to the whole idea that this is going to wipe out humanity. Mm -hmm. That based on these nine people, uh, including myself, who uh, Moira should consider as an outlier, it's definitely going to wipe out the whole human race. There is no evidence of that whatsoever. And yet, uh, I think Rob is trying to just keep the stakes as high as possible. Mm -hmm. Sorry, one random historical context point. The movie Outbreak actually came out in 95, which right. is a yeah. few years before this. And it was a very popular film mm -hmm. that created this kind of public interest in virology. So there, there would have been a public discourse already yeah. happening exactly yeah. as Matt oh, was yeah. saying. Yeah, there was, there was worry about evil. Mm -hmm. In Philadelphia, yeah. was out in 93, I think. It mm -hmm. won the Oscar yeah, yeah. in 94. But yeah, like the Ebola scare was out there. People were worried about like you know, mysterious diseases carried by mosquitoes and stuff. Like there were there were yeah. fears of viruses. I mean, there were fears of can you catch AIDS from you know a bug bite from mosquitoes? Seat. Like this is a thing that people were worried about, and it's just this is largely absent from the from the legacy virus story because the legacy virus let's face it it's supposed to be aids it's not it's not vague when it's create when it's created right. it's supposed to be aids and you know did you want to take the extra step and say the legacy virus was sexually communicated not here not where we are with the code no. we're trying like we we couldn't say that right like so it's just spread like a cold i guess now you got me thinking about like the the people that they list infecta and alanya and, and pyro how many of them hooked up how many of them off panel were getting it on i mean and Moira couldn't put the <laughs> couldn't put the pieces together because she didn't know that they were intimate i'm just checking do any of the ones that so of the people they mentioned, the ones who know each other are probably Pyro and Mastermind. She's also missing somebody. She's missing yeah, some because there, there's um characters like, I can't remember the name, but at least one of the High Lords or the externals from oh. one of them had it and died and I don't remember who and I cannot be bothered to oh. Google it right now, so I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> like I literally, my keyboard is at least a foot and a half from my hand and I just do not care enough to like search or search extra X, early X-Force in order to find that so sorry but like there were others yeah let me bring it back to a question for david having to do with you know using allegories in these kind of fantastic spaces i mean i think one of the issues that we could bring up with the way that it's been depicted is the fact that for the most part when we've seen this virus depicted in these comics it's been an invisible virus like we keep being told that moira is suffering from it we haven't seen her exhibiting symptoms right. we haven't seen the signs of the illness on her body we just haven't seen that right and that could be a story that you could tell maybe she's hiding it maybe it is an invisible illness i mean that can be a really powerful thing to talk about as well you know the way someone can be suffering and it's invisible so we don't take it seriously and that could be a story that we're telling I'm not convinced that's the story we are telling here, but I think it feeds into a question about, you know, is this responsible portrayal when it is divorced from reality this way? And what are some of the considerations that we could bring to bear on a story like this to you, David? You know, when we're having this virus in this fantastical space, when not a lot of the aspects of representation correlate super well to reality i mean i'm thinking of things like she's going into containment with this containment suit and yet sean comes in to give her a hug before goodbye and she immediately lowers the mask and hugs him and then puts the suit back on <laughs> you're like okay <laughs> i like that she's just wearing slacks yeah she's just wearing yeah. every she has this whole contraption over her head over her torso over her arms and then she's just wearing like camo pants yeah i know it's it's a, it's a quite an outfit but yeah i mean what what are your thoughts about that though like i mean what is in danger there or you know when we have this fantasy space that you know obviously we know it's an allegory it's not like a one-to-one -one relationship with reality but do we do we risk something there in terms of representation when we're falling so hard into this fantasy representation i like i like that your focus on representation here because what i find so strange uh, about the legacy virus particularly as a, in a superhero comic is its lack of visibility now 
there, as you rightly said, there's any number of conditions and illnesses that are invisible that affect people and we can't see them, whether that's mental health or chronic pain or any, I mean, all the way up to uh, arthritis and, and so forth. But I find it weird that a visual medium did not assign even a visual marker to the legacy virus. And again, maybe I'm thinking too much of Hickman here. He assigned a visual marker to everything, to the the spring, the winter council and the quiet chamber and Krakoa. And this drug has this shape and this other drug has this shape. The fact that we have basically nothing portraying the legacy virus but a bunch of words, just a word salad, worries me ever so slightly because I think if you are impressionable, if you're reading this while you're young, you may think that, is this how medicine works? Is this how research is done? I like that it's bringing the real world impact to families and loved ones. Mm -hmm. That I think is excellent. And that's what X-Men as, you know, the soap opera that it is does best. But where the, the risk is, is basically in misconstruing just what science is capable of, how science operates. And X-Men and superhero comics at large have never done well by i mean all science is super science and all and all technology is nano super hollow ultra technology so i i don't think this is limited to the x-men or excalibur or or marvel but i think that is what's missing i would love to see the strangely out of place true science uh true scientists working on on some matter and getting it peer-reviewed and having a published <laughs> journal rather than ejected into colossus and he is sacrificed to live <laughs> so that the rest may live but he's brought back so don't worry about you it you hear that I, scholars publish in a peer-reviewed <laughs> journal don't inject your research into colossus <laughs> yes exactly I think that's fine <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, I mean, related to that, I mean, I also wanted to to talk a little bit about the representation of of suicide here, and I'll, I'll put a I'll put. I'm always very cautious when we talk about self harm and suicide in any kind of context. I'll put a content warning on the episode about it, but um, because we open the issue with a discussion about that, right? Because Moira is dealing with like a mental health challenge as well as a physical challenge, and the mental health challenge has been represented in the comic. We have been seeing, you know, her depression and her battle with hiding those feelings from the people that she's supposed to protect. So I feel like we have had a little bit of that represented, and I don't know. I was curious if we had thoughts about how that. That's alluded to at the beginning of this comp. Not this can comp, I offer? You know? Yeah, please go ahead. Can David. I offer one thought on that? I think we have Moira on one hand, and then at the very opposite pole of mental, emotional awareness and emotional maturity, we have the hologram of Emma Frost. Mm. Right. And I just love that we have Moira, Moira physically here and depleted and self sacrificing. And dealing with her own victim of dealing with her own pathology. And then we have the literally untouchable hologram of Emma Frost <laughs> providing total cold comfort to Sean, to, to Banshee. And I think they just represent this almost, and, and this is going back to my religious studies stuff, this uh, um, Madonna whore de, uh, polarization. So whereas you have Moira re ready to sacrifice herself, and we could question whether this is really necessary, is this too much is this self-harm we have this other representation of someone who will not be touched uh by anything at all yeah mm -hmm. and it's it's clearly that contrast is set up very deliberately and like yeah that's maybe a good use of <laughs> superhero tech and metaphors to kind of underscore that a little bit and our mileage on it will vary i'm sure but yeah. i don't know did did i'll go to you with it andrew like did you have any thoughts about kind of some of this representation of self-harm. I mean, I, I definitely sort of had a little bit of a ooh reaction to like Sean's line of like, no one's going to do anything stupid like that, which is one of those things where I'm like, that is a thing that people say. So I don't want to say it's bad writing because maybe that's something Sean would say, but I definitely, I was like, ooh, a little bit at this representation here. So I think there's there's a few comparisons you can make here. I, I mean, the most fundamental question to me is like, how would this be different if it was a male character? 
And I think Moira has more claim to an act of martyrdom around a disease than Colossus does, quite obviously, yeah, right? Yeah. This is her arena. Um, when Moira debuts as a character, she's introduced as a Nobel Prize winner. At the time, seven women had won the Nobel Prize in, in actual human history, right? Mm-hmm. So having this like super heroic scientist narrative end in a sacrifice to take it, like, like that makes sense in a superhero context to me. Um, so I'm not mad at it for that reason. The comparison is made to Ahab, which one we should not do because you have a character oh my God. named Ahab in your book. That was infuriating. They were like, like Ahab, you mean like Rory Campbell? Oh no, you just meant no, like mean the literary Ahab. Don't use that comparison in a book that has a character called that. Come on, Ben. Come on, Ben. But, we're trying to be nice to you this week, but come on. But that also undermines moira's hero arc here too though because the whole point of moby dick is that ahab is obsessed with something that he doesn't need to be obsessed with moira's claim to mastery of this subject being the hope for mankind is valid you know what i mean yep so in that sense i kind of like it again within the superhero context and the emphasis that that genre places on martyrdom yeah, it was hard. I found myself getting sort of all tangled up with it because I don't know, like the the way it's been represented. And I thought about the way that Kid Ileana succumbs to the virus as well. And it just, I don't know, there's a little bit of like a fainting couchness about it, like where, you know, this woman is sort of like withering away and we just see them sort of in bed a lot and it's not clear what they're suffering from. And I just, some of that maybe a little bit. Kid Ileana or Moira? Well, both of them, even though Moira hasn't, Moira hasn't been in bed. So I guess yes. it's not the same thing, but still the, the off panelness of, of her sort of illness that still is bound up in that a little bit for me, because she just keeps sort of melodramatically suffering sort of in the background of all of these comics. And yeah. I like her, I like her hero moment here. I totally agree with you, Andrew, but I, I've got, it gives me a little bit of pause. Anyway, Mav, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I disagree a little bit there because it, in it, so I've read this twice. Um, well, I've read it more than twice. I've read it twice today and uh to to double check and make sure i was right about this i don't think moira's even remotely suicidal and that's important yeah yeah i think rain is worried because rain is her daughter and my mommy is going to die that and 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 that's not bad and rain characterizes it as suicide because of that like rather than moira characterizing it that way right that's not and that's not that's not bad writing that is you know, Rain, who's got a history of abandonment, like lifelong. And, you know, the one person that she considers family that she has left is she's worried. Like her reaction, I think, is completely it's not good, but it's completely realistic. And she's not listening to me. Well, let me call her boyfriend and he'll convince her. And like and she's kind of and then Sean has to say, no, this is something she's got to do. Like, I'm OK with all that. I think what's going through Moira here is I agree we need to see her suffer with something because I don't know why she's yeah. sick other than the fact that she just tells us she is. And I and I and I understand the idea of an invisible illness. But the difference is when somebody's dealing with an invisible illness in reality that's it's invisible because i can't see their thoughts moira i can see her thoughts and like Mm. i don't know what's wrong with her other than the fact that she tells me she's sick like even if she just Mm. said i feel fine but i know because of my calculations that i've got six months or six weeks or like i don't know parameters and so that makes it hard for me to buy into what is being on the page so what i have to do is go with what's on the page and what's on the page is she is making a rational heroic solution the way that she would because the thing that I think is right about Moira is like, oh, you can't quarantine yourself. You can't, you can't, you can't. Yes, she can. And she should have. And she should. Ago. <laughs> Not <laughs> like, go to Paris. Like, like, like literally everything about, uh, about this, like that's the, that's the broken science part. She absolutely should be quarantined. She's got a deadly airborne illness. Why, you know, why has she been walking around without a mask on? You know, <laughs> like, I mean, I know I live in a COVID time. Right. But like, but, but she's a scientist. It's not weird that she wants to do this. And furthermore, the reality is she's a scientist who lives in a facility that has video screens everywhere. Yes. Like, like she's going to lock herself (laughs) in a room over there and you'll be able to talk to her and like, yeah, okay, fine. You can't hug her, but you know what? You moved to America without her when you were like 13 and you were fine for years, right? Like it's not like it's it's not 
it's weird because Rain's overreacting, not because they're really going to be separated. I mean, she's saying that, but she's overreacting because she's afraid her mom's going to die. And that's why I'm able to like, you know, sort of, I don't want to say hand wave away. I'm willing to accept Rain's behavior and I'm able to accept Moira's behavior because Moira does not act suicidal at all. In fact, when Sean comes to, to talk her out of it, she very obviously is in full control of her faculties. And he's just like, oh, okay, yeah, well, I, I'm not going to win this fight. No point in even trying. How can I support you? He even says, how can I support you? So like, I'm weirdly team Ben Rob today. <laughs> like, I think he's doing right. the best he possibly can. There's a brokenness to this story, right? Like the brokenness to the story is he was handed, you know, the materials he was handed were for a illness that does not make sense as con- narratively but i think the writing inside those parameters is actually as realistic as can happen for these particular characters can i tell you what i think is the physical evidence of what you're suggesting mav in terms of the editorial limits that must have been on rob Mm -hmm. in putting this uh, on the page that we were discussing i think it's page 12 where it lists all the all the people who have the legacy virus did you notice that they use mora's face twice Mm -hmm. i mean they actually have a cut and paste it's the Uh, same image yeah yeah it's the it's the same image twice which just tells me that he had to uh, like script this down to the bone they didn't even have room to put in a big uh explosive strife it just gets squeezed in there so there must have been such limits as to what this issue was allowed to do that he was trying to operate it and and create drama out of there's another one that's not even i mean i was going to save it for later but it's not it's not even part of the legacy virus story there's a whole page the i think fifth page of the issue one two three fourth page of the issue which yeah. is just an ad for generation x a very good yeah. book but yep. it's, but it's just hey let's have sean talk here it's just an ad for what's going on in another series that has nothing to do with the storyline whatsoever it has nothing to do with moira being sick it's not about the legacy virus it's just things that sean's going thinking about and if you're wondering more about this maybe go read his comic book on stands now yeah you're, <laughs> you're the excalibur expert so you can tell me would Excalibur be boosting Gen X sales at this time? No, at this no, time? No, 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 no. At this time, Gen very X much the other way. Possibly more popular than Excalibur okay. at this time. <laughs> they are borrowing Banshee for a potential bump. They are yeah, they are yeah, borrowing time, a character. Yeah. yeah. Gen X is actually a really hot book when it takes off. Like it it is people are excited about it. We are big fans, but Excalibur is in a world where it's going to be canceled in 11 issues. Mm, okay, yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's so funny. It's like these change of fortunes. Like, I mean, if it had, this had been like five years ago, it'd be like, get starring Banshee. It'd be like, okay. But like now it's like, oh, he's in this hot new book now. I mean, his fortunes have gone way up. But um, yeah, this is this is Banshee's zaddy phase. To yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. It is indeed. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> But uh, let's go to some final thoughts because we've been talking for a bit and we haven't talked about the two other sort of B-plot scenes of this issue with uh, Pete Wisdom and Megan. So uh, we can bring those up in final thoughts if we want, but I'll go around and give everybody a chance to to weigh in on something that they want to circle back to or or talk about a little bit more. And we'll start with you, Andrew. Anything you want to circle back to about this issue? Uh, very quickly, Madripoor Knight's splash page, but with Banshee. Uh, <laughs> one of the most swiped images. In it very history. much is. Uh, you um, explain what that is? Um, yeah, <laughs> is oh, it's a picture. Explain. It's a splash of Captain America from an Uncanny X-Men comic drawn yeah. by Jim Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Madripoor Knights. It was a very famous um, one-off comic starring the exactly Captain that America. Yeah, like it's, it's just <laughs> it is it's, it's swiped. It's swiped, yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then the thing I want to talk about briefly, because we, we've been tracking Doug Locke a lot, and we've been talking about how Doug Locke's story keeps getting yeah. you know, retold and, and, and revised. I didn't like the way Doug Locke's attraction to Rain was framed in this issue. It as, was weird. Yeah, yeah, him wanting to go back to a collective, that's sort of the opposite of where he is. That's the opposite of where Warlock was from the outset. And I think that metaphor is also even just, just kind of bad generally. Uh, as a way of um, sort of creating problems with what psychologists call differentiation. The idea of being in a relationship just for the sake of being part of a collective and how that's really bad to your sense of self. I thought in particular for Doug Locke, especially bad because his character arc has been the opposite of that. That was evidence to me that 
Ben Rob doesn't know that he's going to be Warlock. Mm, that's interesting. Because it doesn't, I mean, like, I mean, we've, we've spoiled that because it's not going to be resolved in this book, right? Like, the book will be canceled before we, that's ever, this screams, I don't know, what do we know about the phalanx? All right, let's say that. <laughs> like, I, I don't yeah. think that, I don't think that there's thought put into that other than it was, but it's not even how Rob's been writing Doug Lock recently. So it, it does yeah. seem out of character. It's a change. I was wondering if it was just related to like a larger editorial thing that they were wanting to push because it is such a change to how he had been characterizing him previously. And it, it struck me as a bit toxic as well. Like he's like, well, it's not that I like you as a person. I just feel that I need to be in a collective with someone. I'm like, oh, that's uh, disappointing. <laughs> Pointing just compared to where this was going before. I really, that scene gave me hives. I did not enjoy it. I'm glad that you brought it up. Oh, Daddy, uh, you're so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Mav, was there something that you would like to talk about that we didn't get a chance? Uh, yeah, we touched on it briefly. Um, but like, this is a weird book for me because I remember reading this. And as I said earlier, I was a big fan of Generation X as well. So I would have been reading that as well. And I, and I, I'd been reading Excalibur the entire time, right? Were, were Sean and Moira still in a relationship? Oh, yeah, that's, I know. that's uh, something. Um, yeah. I, I mean, he, he left quite some time ago and, and they've not like, I mean, apparently they had a date recently. Okay. I didn't know that. I mean, like, I'm like, she, last time we saw Charles and her together, they seem to have feelings for each other, which, which I'm okay with. I'm okay with them having a complicated relationship with feelings that are unresolved on all sides. That was largely the story between the love triangle between Sean and Moira and, and Chuck that had always existed. And Chuck loses, right? Like she, she picks Sean, but like, He'd left. And and frankly, if you're reading um, Generation X at this time, there's a lot of will they won't they building between him and Emma like that's mm -hmm. that's what the story is there. And again, we're not going to get to it, so I don't mind spoiling it like the, the tension between Sean and Emma is not do I want to be with her? I have a girlfriend back in Scotland. The tension is do I want to be with her? She's, you know, evil. <laughs> like that that's the that's the tension so i, I it, it is weird it is weird that they're like oh so you guys are are still not even just like sort of dating and not even like i don't read this like um like a curtain amanda relationship you know that's a i'll see you when i see you and then it's gonna be great and i'm fine with their relationship being that this uh, they were living together they were you know all but married and then they weren't anymore and then he shows up because, oh, you know, we're still together. We just live on different continents. And I'm just like, oh, is is this a thing? They're, they're still a thing, huh? That, that was yeah. weird for me. Yeah, that struck me as weird, too. Because, I mean, again, it's the framing of it, too. Because if it was framed a little bit differently, as you're saying, very similar to the Kurt and Amanda relationship where they're in and out of each other's lives, that would be different. But it's really framed here like, oh, he's her one true love and, like, their boyfriend-girlfriend. Yeah. And they went out on a date. And it was like, oh, really? Because we have not mentioned Sean in the three years that Moira has been in this book. <laughs> yeah. But I guess yeah. they've been seeing each other. She, I mean, they left like even when the the Murr Island saga is several years ago at this point. Yeah. He's just been in America and and just gone. And I just thought, they do briefly oh. get together in like X Men three or no four. They they leave the mansion together. But okay, I mean, that's like what nineteen ninety two, and we're in yeah. That's like five years ago. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. It's still hilariously <laughs> distant. But. Yeah, I, I just, I mean, and like, not that there was a breakup story or anything like that. You just kind of figure, oh, I, I didn't know they were still a couple. Okay, that's a, because yeah. if he is, then why hasn't there been an issue ever with, oh, my God, Moira's yeah. suffering from the legacy virus. Let me, let me be here. Let me be underfoot until she tells me to go away, right? Like, like if the story works, if Sean rushes back to Scotland two years ago and is just annoying the hell out of her doting on her where, when, while she's like, boy, move, boyo, move. I've got to do work, <laughs> you know, like that, like that I would believe, but like, he's just not been there. So I just assumed that they weren't together anymore. And it's like, oh, I, I guess they are. 
Well, and we all get the restrictions of like, you know, shared continuity comics and everything, you know, writers didn't want Sean in this book, they didn't care about him, maybe they couldn't use him. But still, I think there's a way that you could have done this story then that would make more sense because you could have been like, just have some line about like, I know we haven't been close, but like, I still care about you a lot, you know, like, I mean, just something that would make more sense than to just pretend that they've been together all this time, which is rather than if Rain calls and says, Mr. Cassidy, I don't know who has to call. Yeah, like, exactly, you're my last exactly. hope. Like that that's the that fixes the problem for me. Like rather exactly. than, oh, we just went on a date last week, just say, I, you know, I, I don't know what else to do. Maybe you can help. And then I and then I believe, because I absolutely believe that that Sean is the guy that like if Rain calls and says Moira is suicidal, he's gonna fly sure. across the Atlantic on I, his own. I, I buy like, that. Yeah, like he, without even thinking about it. Like I I get that. Like I that that I believe, but I'm not given that here, so no, I I buy that it just was framed strangely. My my two things are just going to be the two scenes that we didn't talk about yet, which I mentioned, which is Pete looking for Kurt using Cerebro. I'm not even going to get into how he's using Cerebro. I don't even care. It doesn't <laughs> make easy. sense. Kitty said so. Kitty you said know. it's easy. But the part that I think is really funny is that they've been struggling to get this to work. It's apparently their last chance to find Kurt. And then he just like breaks it with hot knives and walks away and is like, fuck this. And I'm like, total asshole move. It was such an asshole move that I may be on his side in this particular instance because it was very funny and very destructive um, and cruel. And, you know, have at it, I guess. Did make me laugh. And the other thing was going to be Brian's letter to Megan, which like Brian wrote this letter <laughs> like an eight year old writing on yep. with printing on like ruled school paper. And gosh, this was a strange choice for like, you know, traditional British educated Brian Braddock to write in this manner. But um, I don't understand whether it was intentional for it to look like it was written by an eight year old. Just a real, real strange uh, visual choice there to me but uh anyway since you brought it up can i tell you my problem with it brian wrote this letter huh brian wrote um that i should i should be back in your arms captain britain will ascend to his former I know, glory I know, befittingly I know. true protector of the who what none of that <laughs> says he's clearly been replaced by a scroll because this is not what brian <laughs> would ever say it is nonsense i wasn't even gonna touch it okay because uh, that was i i, I mean I wasn't going to bring it up, total, but since you total did. Total reversal of his characterization, like, <laughs> in a letter that looks like it was written by a child. <laughs> yeah. See, like, okay. Maybe it is scrolls. Like, it great. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I just, I try. I'm really trying not to go super hard on some of these issues. And I think we were pretty nice to this issue today. But those yeah. are the kind of moments that, like, from this yeah. era that really are like, these comics ain't good, you know? <laughs> I, I, I have to admit that I am compelled to raise my initial grade, my initial assessment uh, of this uh, issue from muddled to mm, what's better than muddled? Muddled. Solid B than, plus. I'm telling yeah, you. Solid. <laughs> All right. A low B plus, if only because, and I'm, and I'm almost rolling my eyes at myself as I construct this thought, for all the messy science and melodrama and illogical decisions that are made, there is an emotional truth to it. When you think about how many families were compromised, sacrificing, had to distance from each other during during the pandemic, during COVID-19. I, I have a friend who's a doctor who was working here in Boston, and he had to live in his own family's basement. He couldn't go upstairs to see his kids out of fear. Now, they could still communicate through screens, so I don't know what uh, Wolfsbane is going on about, but the wailing and gnashing of teeth is genuine. I, I think that that Rob did find something to hang his hat on the hat itself wasn't all that pretty but the <laughs> hanger but the hanger works that is a very positive note to conclude our conversation on david i appreciate it <laughs> well a darkly darkly positive darkly positive but still. darkly positive <laughs> let's go with it <laughs> i was not born to live a man's life but to be the stuff of future memory the fellowship was a brief beginning, a fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten, 
that fair time may come again. So we will wrap things up there other than to say, David, I can't thank you enough for joining us. I couldn't mm -hmm. for the life of me figure out an angle for this particular issue. And I'm so grateful that you were able to be here and help us make something of it. Um, before totally we, my pleasure. Before we say goodbye, let us remind our lovely listeners of the places that they can find you. If you would like people to find you on the internet, whereabouts can they find you and hype your projects, past, present, oh, well. future, what should people be checking out? Uh, well, I can, I, while it's still lumbering along, I'm still on Twitter or X as at A.D. Lewis. But if you've taken to the blue skies, I'm at A.D. Lewis there as well. Instagram as a.davidlewis because because some bastard took A.D. <laughs> Lewis from me. <laughs> what am I working on right now? I'm I I'm strangely between projects. Oh, I dangerous uh, time. I know. I'm taking a weird little breather and getting to do shows like yours that affords me the opportunity to have conversations like this. Uh, but I will say my my latest work is a, an adaptation of Khalil Gibran's The Prophet that was mentioned at the outset. It just came out this year, and this is the 100th anniversary of that poem. So if you want to be part of the centennial celebration through comics, certainly pick up a copy. Certainly, we will be linking that in the show notes. And yeah, just thank you so, so, so much again for joining us, David. My pleasure. Thank you. Next. Kurt is back. What else do you need to know? My hey. retroactive protest worked and he's also wet and almost naked to boot in Excalibur number 116, <laughs> Death in Venice. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, plus our holiday specials. You can find those via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur, you can reach out via our website, goshgollywa.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via x slash Twitter and Blue Sky at Gosh golly wow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you mav and andrew for another very healthy convo thank you david for getting graphically medical with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought music for a truly epic theme song play us out 